Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. This Close to OK is the second novel by Lisa Cross-Smith, and the book continues to win critical acclaim. Reviewer Peter Malone Elliott says, The novel feels like chicken soup for the soul, but cooked by a Michelin-starred chef. Rich complexity and thorough engagement of all sensibilities. The author, Lisa Cross-Smith, will tell us about this close to OK later in the hour. First, Georgia's booming film and TV industry is well-known. Now, a couple of Atlanta teenagers have won national attention and prizes for their documentary filmmaking for C-SPAN. Second prize winner of more than 1,200 entries. Will Morrison is an eighth grader at the Davis School. He joins us now with Pam McGorry, the Education Program Senior Specialist at C-SPAN Classroom. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you for having us. It's a pleasure to join you this morning. Yes, thank you. Pam, please tell us about the C-SPAN Student Cam competition and why it was created. Well, C-SPAN's Student Cam competition is a documentary competition that we host every year. And the goal of this program is to get students thinking about issues that are affecting them, not just across the nation, but take it down to the local level. So it's having them select a topic that's important to them, having them learn the research skills, interview skills, looking at some C-SPAN video that supports their issue and package that all together in a documentary to tell their story. And that's really truly what the focus is. It's not what students think we want to see at C-SPAN, it's what they want to see. And I will say that that's what uh, Will accomplished in his documentary. It was clear throughout his video that this was an issue that he is very passionate about. Will, what is the topic of your documentary? Well, the topic of my documentary is autism and the effects of COVID-19 on the autism community. 
So, and this has been a very uh, close topic to me since my brother has autism. Ah, I'm curious about the overall question C-SPAN student camp asked students to address in their submissions. Now, this year's theme, we asked students to explore the issue they most want the president and new Congress to address in 2021. Ah, so will this being such an important part of your family life this is something you feel important that the White House and Congress pay attention to. How did you find out about the C-SPAN student camp video documentary competition, Will? Well, I found out in sixth grade when my theater teacher, Miss Kendrick, said that there was a documentary competition, and I thought this was a fantastic opportunity, but I couldn't do it until I was in eighth grade. So I was very excited to participate in it because I love finding new ways of using the filmmaking technique to tell stories. How did you decide which people you wanted to interview, Will? Well, I had a lot of recommendations from my faculty advisor, Mrs. Kendrick, and she told me about a few of them, but for people such as John Albers, I actually found him because he had helped fund a summer camp that my brother used to go to. Oh. I'm curious about the guidelines for students creating their documentaries. Pam, could students get help from parents or other mentors? Uh, it's interesting. Students can compete by themselves with a partner or in a team of three. And it's launched in September, certainly with the back-to-school time. Teachers can have students create documentaries as part of a classroom project, but students can do it outside as well. You know, teachers can be there to guide them, but it's truly uh, the work of the students. Hmm. Will, would you tell us more about your documentary, how it unfolds? Well, John Albers is featured in it. Plenty of great people working for the autism community and trying to help it as well as my mom, who I thought would be great in it because she is a parent of an autistic child, as well as the structure of it. It goes into problems that many members of the autism community face, as well as personal struggles with my brother who has autism, like finding a group home for him to be in. And the fact that I haven't seen him in over a year because of COVID, but he has received his vaccine, which is very good, so. Good, oh, that must be very difficult for you and your parents, as well as your brother, to have been separated this whole year. Were you able to FaceTime or Zoom visit with him? We have actually Zoomed him plenty of times, and he seems pretty happy, but the thing is, it's not the same as seeing him in person. However, 
my parents have been able to see him a few times and I saw him briefly for about a minute a few weeks ago. So that's good. Oh, wow. So the fact that he is living in the group home and you shot this during the pandemic, I guess you weren't able to feature him on camera. I was not able to feature him on camera. No, he's not very good on camera. So yeah, I did not feature him on camera. Okay. When you heard you won second prize out of over 1,200 other entries. How did you feel? Well, I was in the lobby of my school, and I didn't want to jump around and scream because that'd kind of be rude to some of the other students there, but I was (laughs) absolutely elated, and I thought it was great that my message was finally getting out there, and it was just a wonderful feeling. Oh, I can imagine. Pam, would you tell us about the various topics some of the other prize winners addressed in their videos? Sure. I mean, students addressed the environment. They were really interested in, you know, plastics and how that affects, how it affects their lives. Healthcare was very important, particularly with the whole COVID crisis that's unfolded. Uh, mental health issues were were part of some of students' concerns. How did the panel of judges evaluate the students' videos? Were there elements they had to check yeah. off in a box? Each video goes through uh, several rounds of judging. So the first one is just the basic criteria that it is five to six minutes in length includes some C-SPAN video. It's related to the theme and explores different sides of the issue. And then from there, we get into how did they explore those different sides of the issue and how did they present their research? So the interviews that they did are key to it. What other elements then they did? I know Will had used quotes uh, to in his video to represent information or the research that he did, effective music, all those kinds of things uh, become part of the factor. But in the end, we always say, you know, that's really the content that we focus on. I mean, our team, my colleagues and I, we're a small team of three and we're all former classroom teachers. So we appreciate all the work that students in grades six through 12 put into producing their documentaries. Uh, So that's what we think of as we evaluate these. Another Davis School student received an honorable mention prize for the documentary Equality and Protection for All, Laws and the LGBTQ plus community. This was Ariella Lewis. These are very serious topics for students to address. Can you tell us a bit about her film? Actually, Ariella is, well, Ari is one of my closest friends, and their film was about many different issues regarding the LGBTQ plus community, and about the gay panic button, as well as the history, and many other topics regarding that issue. 
Thank you for correcting me about the pronoun. I had just presumed Ariella went by she and her, and I appreciate the correction there. Your documentary will air on C-SPAN throughout the day today. Will, what do you hope viewers will take away from your video? I believe that these, this issue that I'm covering hasn't been covered enough. So I hope that they will realize all the struggles that the autism community is going through during the pandemic and aside from that, such as getting jobs. And I just hope that they truly realize the importance of helping the autism community. And I hope that they will include this topic in their activism. And I hope it really opens people's eyes. Will Morrison, eighth grader at the Davis Academy, was the second prize winner for his documentary, The Missing Piece for Autism. He was joined by Pam Migori, Education Program Senior Specialist at C-SPAN Classroom. More information about the videos will be on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. The area we know as Southwest Iran was once the heart of ancient Persia. In the 6th century before the Common Era, the Persians created an enormous empire reaching from the Indus Valley to northern Greece and from Central Asia to Egypt, truly a multi-ethnic empire. The High Museum of Art is featuring an exhibition of works displaying the rich artistic traditions of Iranian civilization from the 6th to the 19th century. Monica Avnisky is the Curator of Decorative Arts and Design at the High. She's with us now via Zoom. Monica, welcome to City Lights. Oh, it's such a pleasure to be here with you, Lois. Thank you. Well, it was such a pleasure to read up about this exhibition, Bestowing Beauty. How did this exhibition come to the high. We have a wonderful relationship with a collector by the name of Hossein Afshar, and their curator of Islamic art put on this exhibition, as, as you mentioned, Bestowing Beauty, Masterpieces from Persian Lands. 
And our director, Rand Suffolk, thought it would be a great show to bring to Atlanta. And I really see it as part of our broader kind of diversity and inclusion efforts. As you well know, we don't really have, um, not just really, we don't have an Islamic collection at the high. And so it's really nice to be able to show other forms of art making to our Atlanta audiences. Yes. And this is an exhibition of nearly a hundred works. That's a substantial collection. Yes, and it's only a fraction of Mr. Offshar's collection, as I understand it. The works on view really range, as you have probably noticed. Um, everything from you know very small works like pen cases and pages of the Quran to extremely large-scale textiles and kind of everything in between. So there are a lot of works packed into these very small galleries. Oh, I read that Persia was the first empire known to have acknowledged the different religions, languages, and political organizations of its subjects. Is that multifaceted aspect revealed in any of the art that is on display? Yes. You know, I'll just say that people coming into the exhibition may expect to see certain works like pages from the Quran or or works of ceramic, because, of course, these are things that the Iranians were known for. But there were some surprises. And, you know, I'll just say as one example, we have this kind of we have these three paintings from the Qajar period of uh, Iranian beauties. And some of them may be scantily clad. And so this goes to show you that cultures change over time. And I think it goes back to exactly what you were saying about the Persian culture and how it has adjusted over over the centuries. Yeah, because I believe in much of Islamic art, the human form is not depicted. So this really was either indicative of a much earlier time, pre-nation, or, as you say, just a very different set of beliefs that changed and became more conservative over the years. Right. And in the exhibition, is um, because the works really range and Mr. Afshar's collecting spans from the 6th through the 19th centuries, there are kind of various moments over time. I'm very excited for, for Atlanta to be able to see these things. Yes, gorgeous works. In fact, the exhibition contains some exceptionally beautiful rugs, elaborate designs, the King Umberto II Polonaise. I'm a textile fanatic, and I think this exhibition has some really, really gorgeous textiles in it. But the one that you're speaking of, the Polonaise, yeah, it's so, I mean, the design is uh, kind of curving lines and beautifully colored threads. But I, I love the kind of story behind the carpet and why these carpets really helped Iranian culture. So this, the Shah Abbas, who was the Safavid ruler, when these carpets began to be produced, he was the one who really understood the kind of creative potential in these kind of carpets because he was the one who moved the, the capital to Isfahan. And Isfahan is one, was one of these kind of carpet centrals. So 
these carpets were really a kind of form of conspicuous consumption. And that's something that I think we can all understand these days. And as you look at the carpet, and you can understand that because the carpet's actually woven with gold and silver, in addition to these kind of bright threads. And I love this because, well, number one, you can see how, I mean, you just see, it's just a luxurious object. And it would have been right at home in any Iranian royal's home. But the other super interesting part about these carpets is that they were also made for export to Europe, which is why I think they're super fascinating for contemporary audiences and why this carpet has the name Umberto II, because it was made for, well, not that it was made for this ruler, but that it ended up in Umberto II, who was part of the House of Savoy. It ended up in that kind of kingdom in, in Italy. And so these Polonaise carpets were widely exported in Europe. And I think that is also fascinating because they are found in these European collections more so than they're found in Iran. And I think this is kind of funny because historians believe that the Iranians would have found them a little bit too garish, for, <laughs> right? But, but Europeans, right? I mean, with their kind of golden interiors, these things would have been right at home. Oh, what do they care? They were the Beverly Hills of their day, right? The, exactly, the, exactly. But it, it is remarkable how coveted Persian carpets were and remain. What is especially distinctive? You mentioned the gold and silver threads in the King Umberto, but even today, why are Persian rugs so expensive? I'll say for the kind of vintage and certainly these historic Persian rugs, it will amaze you when you're when you Lois and our audiences are standing in front of this carpet and not only are you marveling at the beautiful design and the fact that there are these really precious materials that are used throughout it but the fact that these things were made by hand on a large loom i just i want to impress upon people particularly in an age of industrial production how awe inspiring it is for someone to weave something and for it to have a beautiful design and to have these luxurious materials. And the fact that the Iranians were masters at this, that they were doing this for centuries and that there were several places throughout the empire that became known for this. This was really kind of one of the crafts in which they shined. Yes. The exhibition also highlights the importance of calligraphy. I read that calligraphers enjoyed high status among artists in Persian society. And I think calligraphers in Islamic art today also enjoy high status. Would you describe some examples of calligraphy we might see in this show? There's actually calligraphy almost everywhere you look, which is um, quite remarkable. So not only where you would expect it, which, you know, the pages of the Quran, of course, you would expect to see calligraphy there, but also on some of the ceramic vessels, also on some of the manuscript illuminations. There's a wonderful wooden cenotaph as you, as you enter the exhibition, and that is full of calligraphic text. So there's really calligraphy everywhere. And part of this has to do with exactly what you were saying, in that calligraphers were privileged as the highest ranking artists, right? 
it wasn't the painters, it wasn't the, the ceramic artists, it was the calligraphers. And this really has to do with the fact that for Islamic art, the highest form of art was and continues to be this idea of copying the word of God. And if you are able to do that, if you are an artist who does that well, that not only is that a kind of sign of piety for you as, as a kind of individual, but then also for the person that has commissioned you to do that work. So it's kind of doing double duty in that regard. Oh. Bookbinding was another important part of Persian culture. In this exhibition, we see a gorgeously detailed lacquer book cover depicting the life of a Persian king. Would you talk about this work and the significance of the scene it depicts? This book binding, which actually has an attributable artist, um, so it's attributed to Akka Marak, um, and that is, first of all, you know, almost miraculous to have a person's name kind of attached to it. Second miraculous thing is that it's made of lacquer. Lacquer is one of the most notoriously stubborn materials. And to be able to have the level of detail that this book binding has is quite remarkable. So again, I'm, I urge people to take a look at this. What the bookbinding demonstrates is this kind of way that these two essential princely pleasures come together. So, and by the two princely pleasures, I mean feasting and fighting or banquets and battles as one of the sections of the exhibition explores. So the upper cover has this youthful prince in the center and surrounding him are various courtiers um, who are enjoying refreshments, and they are kind of found in this flower-filled spring landscape. Uh, there's also a stream nearby. And surrounding the prince are these two very elegant, elongated cypresses that flank him. Mm -hmm. And so you're really, you know, you're, you're kind of in this lush, idyllic scene. And this time, this is taking place in the autumn months. And in this hunt scene, there are these various riders on horseback who are attacking animals left and right with bow and arrow. And one of the courtiers has a great success, right? So his falcon was able to capture a crane in mid-flight, and there's a person kind of pointing to it and, and making a big deal out of this. And so for the Persians, this notion of hunting was extremely important. And I encourage, as I said, everyone to really carefully study this because it's very gorgeous work. And astonishing in detail. Oh, yes. As many things are in this exhibition, it is a jewel box of a show that really encourages very close looking. <laughs> Would you describe the 19th century piece titled Pear? Yes. So this is a metal pear, <laughs> which may sound rather mundane and benign, but again, it's has very intricate metalwork on the kind of body of the pear, but then also on the stem and a pear would have suggested paradise. And in the Quran, paradise is described as having fruit-filled trees, a kind of lush landscape, flowering trees, again, this very idyllic kind of setting. And during the Qajar period of the 19th century, as you mentioned, steel fruit, like this pear, became extremely popular uh, for people to acquire. And I know this sounds rather strange for contemporary audiences, 
But the reason why these uh, objects were so popular is because pious owners could perpetually have this perfect fruit at their disposal. And again, for them, for their faith, the kind of form of the pear really encapsulated this kind of vision of paradise, right? This vision of perfection, because nothing was ever going to happen to this pear. It was an ideal form. It was the most perfect pear you've ever, ever seen. And that it was something that was eternal, right? It was not going to tarnish. Well, it could tarnish because, of course, there was metal work, but you could fix that a little bit. But it wasn't going to rot, right? It would be there with you until you reached paradise. Ah, eternal. Nature is eternal. When I think of Persian art, I often think of the beautiful tile work and mosaic art. The Peace Star tile is a great example in this show. Monica, why were Persian artists drawn to tiles and mosaics? Yeah, so Iranians developed an expertise in ceramics and particularly in lusterware. So the star tile that you referenced, which is actually in the first gallery, um, so it's right at the sight line when you walk in, these particular lusterware tiles would have decorated the walls of summer palaces, for example, um, or other types of palaces. So they would have been used in a kind of architectural setting. Luster it was introduced to Kashan, this area in Iran, around 1200. And it was used extremely heavily for about 100 years in these kind of architectural commissions. And it is one of the most difficult things to make. It actually is meant to evoke metal, kind of metal work. And how they're able to do that is they incorporate this microscopically thin layer of silver and copper. And then the tiles have to undergo two rounds of firings, right? So the threat of breaking is even greater after a second round, making these extremely difficult to, to produce. But also, you know, as someone who is really interested in kind of world ceramics, one of the reasons why these lusterware tiles and lusterware ceramics in general are so important is because they actually influenced kind of hundreds of years of European ceramic production because they were exported and, you know, to various places. And then Europeans attempted to copy these tiles. The blues in the enamel that you said had to be fired twice. Those glazes would have to have been fired twice. They're so vivid and brilliant. And I just think that's one of the most marvelous things about Persian art is the tile work. Monica, you mentioned early on how this exhibition is very much in line with the High's mission to expand and draw from more cultures. What would you like museum goers to have gained from seeing this show at the high? I would very much like our audiences to understand that Persian civilization kind of changed over time and they can see this kind of artistic expression over many centuries in the few galleries at the high. The themes of the exhibition, and there are six 
kind of universal themes that is the organizing principle of the exhibition, that these themes transcend time and space and that they actually resonate across many different cultures. So you don't have to be Persian to understand the work that you're looking at, is really to demonstrate and preserve the beauty and significance of art and culture from the Iranian lands, to show that it is worthy of preservation and of our affection today. Monica Obniski is the High Museum Curator of Decorative Arts and Design. The exhibition, Bestowing Beauty, Masterpieces from Persian Lands, is on view at the Hive through April 18th. Lisa Crossmith has written a book that will tantalize your senses. Her descriptions of taste, smell, sounds, and visuals are so vivid, you may think you are an unseen visitor within the story rather than a reader of it. The novel is titled This Close to OK, and the author joins us now via Zoom. Lisa Crossmith, welcome back to City Lights. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I love it here. <laughs> love having you. The story begins with a dire situation. Please elaborate. So my character Tally encounters a man standing on the edge of a bridge as if he's about to jump. Um, she's on her way home in her car. She's on her way home from the gym after work. And so she immediately pulls over and talks to him and tries to get him to come back to the good side of the bridge. She's a therapist, but not telling him that in case he has an aversion to talk therapy in case um, knowing that information would make him shut down. So um, she talks to him on the bridge and eventually um, convinces him to go for a cup of coffee. She's just doing anything for distraction, anything to keep him from taking his own life. And so, yeah, the story starts there, which is pretty wild, I know, yeah. <laughs> oh, yes. And immediately we learn a lot about Talia. She says to the man, hey, I see you. You don't know me but I care about you. Mm -hmm. Would you tell us more about Tally? Yeah, I, I, Tally is a character who's almost a little too emotional, <laughs> almost a little <laughs> too emotional for the world. The world touches her in a, in a lot of different ways. And I, I think a lot of us are like that, or maybe more of us are like that, that we care to admit or that we care to let other people know. Um, she's definitely not a person who would ever just be able to drive past someone who was having any sort of trouble, but especially a big trouble like that. Um, she sat, she's almost like, um, I would say, would sacrifice herself for someone else. Um, and, and that was an amazing character to dig, to dig into because that level of commitment, that level of being able to sacrifice yourself to help someone else is, is not seen everywhere, at least I don't think. We, you would you would hope so, and and that's the sort of it's the sort of thing that sort of pops up when there's a, a traumatic event or some sort of huge like a natural you know disaster or something like that. You see the helpers, you see the people who who really step in. Well, that's who Tally is. Um, but she's she immediately she because of her therapy background, she knows that if she opens up to him, it could maybe hopefully help him open up to her. So immediately she starts telling him about her really bad days. And she's recently divorced and um, she was unable to have 
children, but her husband had an affair and got his mistress pregnant. So she tells him that immediately, which makes him sort of be like, whoa, okay. Now she's telling, you know, it's distracting though, because she's telling him her stuff. Like, I know, right? Like life can be really hard sometimes, but let's hang on together. So that's where we meet her. We get to know her, like you said, like really quickly. (laughs) And after she convinces the man whom we learn she calls Emmett, Mm -hmm. after she convinces Emmett to abandon his suicide attempt. She takes him for coffee and then back to her house. Mm -hmm. Why did you want Tally's home to be the setting for how the story unfolds? Yeah, so when it comes to Tally's house, it's pretty much a character of its own. Um, She has this really perfect, beautiful home that's filled with soft, comfortable, cozy things, soft blankets and candles and two cats. And it's her safe space from the rest of the world. Um, Especially the fact that she is a therapist and spends all day listening to the worst things that have ever happened to people. She has created a spot where when she comes back there, the outside world stays outside and she can feel safe safe and comfortable there. It's her nest. So, the fact that her house is so important to this, it just made sense in her mind to be like, I can get him there. If I can get him there, I can take care of this. I can save him. He will feel better instantly as soon as he walks through my front door. She knows this in her mind because that's the home that she's created. It's an extension of her heart. It's an extension of these feelings that she feels in the way that she wants to comfort people. And so, yeah, I love spending time in her home. I use so many people write me and they want to go to her house. I want to go to her house I love her house (laughs) (laughs) I feel like I'd instantly feel better I try as much as I can to get my own home to to be that same way and I definitely want to go to Tally's too oh Tally is attuned to vibes and she believes in energy how does she glean that Emmett is a nice guy and where does the lilac puff come in Lisa (laughs) Yeah, so I, I what I had to do was deal with the cognitive dissonance um, in a character. I had to deal with the fact that I'm getting a woman to do something that is very, very scary and not at all a thing a woman should do, which is bring a strange man back to her home or be alone with a strange man in any in any way, really, if a woman does not feel comfortable doing that. She, of course, felt comfortable. And I need—I knew I needed to explain that to the reader. Um, there are a couple of different ways I did that. On, on, on one hand, I have Tally, who's always been attuned to things, but especially after her divorce, it's really sharpened. So I mentioned that a couple of times that, you know, she obviously she's not overly trustful of people obviously because of what happened with her husband someone she obviously loved and trusted so much and he could betray her in that way she learned a lot from that and so I have her talk about she feels can feel the energy from a violent person or she feels like she can taste the energy from someone who's up to no good and so she uses her senses to see what they come back with when she's around Emmett. And so (laughs) through the course of them like together in her kitchen and they're making dinner, 
she's like, I have tried to feel this bad energy, this negative, this violent energy from you. And I'm not getting it. You seem like a kitten. It's like a lilac puff. That's what I'm getting back. The reason I picked a lilac puff is just because I love the color lilac it's my favorite but a me, puff. Too. me too I love anything purple but lilac most of all I know oh I love it and I was thinking what's like the least scary thing is like a puff <laughs> it's like, it cannot it literally cannot hurt you in any way it's just a puff there and so I, I use that she refers to it several different times he's got a lilac puff like that's his energy so she's not scared of it in some other situations she may be and has been but she's not scared of Emmett in that way for as much as she can tell and she trusts her instincts hmm. what do we learn about Emmett early on so early on, we learned that Emmett is from another spot in Kentucky. The story is set in Louisville, but he's from a city that's a few hours away. We learned that he doesn't want to talk about what's going on, which is to be expected. He doesn't know Tally, doesn't really want to talk about it. But we, we also learned that he's a good listener. And when she uses her talk therapy tactics on him, he will turn those right back around on her and ask her questions. And he really gets her to open up. And that was an interesting part for me to, to just be able to explore. Um, Tally should really, you know, she is literally in the driver's seat when they're together. And then figuratively, she should be, you would think, in the driver's seat because this is her job, whether she's telling him or not. But he turns it around on her and gets her to talk. And, 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 and not that many people ask Tally how she's, how she is doing. It's her job, um, you know, literally, but also she just takes that role. But he's a really good listener and turns it around on, you know, on her too. The story is written from both of their, um, we're, we get to hear from both of them. So when we do get to hear from Emmett, we hear about, he's not going to tell you everything, of course, it might, I keep my secrets, but he lets the reader know that he's hurting and there's darkness there. And he's considering hanging on just because Tally stopped and wanted to talk to him. Right now, he's comfortable eating at her home at the beginning. And so it's a slow, slowly reveal of all the secrets that he has. But at first, we, we do know that he has a lot of things going on, a lot of darkness. But through that, he's also getting Tally to spill her own darkness and her secrets, too. Yeah. The story takes place over the course of a long weekend. I had to remind myself of that toward the end of the book, Lisa. Hmm. <laughs> would you talk about how you provide so much insight into the characters' lives in this short time span? Hmm. Well, it's such an intense situation. I, I speak often of um, forced intimacy. So in my first novel, Whiskey and Ribbons, um, my characters were snowed in. So all this stuff that they had been avoiding talking about actively and aggressively, talk, you know, avoiding talking about this, they were forced to talk about it because there was nowhere else to go. They were in the same house together and okay, now we have to talk about it. I do that a lot in my work. So it's like the forced intimacy, it brings out more than it normally would. Um, we're, this was an extreme situation. Um, if this gentleman was about to take his own life. So 
Tally's very easily like, okay, we have to talk about this. Like what, what is going on? Like what, what happened? Like, how can I help? Um, and so having them together in that short, intense amount of time, and we're getting both of their inner thoughts, I felt like that was the best and easiest way for me to let the reader know what was going on, the things they think about each other that could be wrong and the things that they're getting right about each other, although it hasn't been completely revealed yet. That back and forth like that really, really helps me. And also we meet a lot of Tally's family. She talks about her family. So instantly, like, it's almost like in an instant, they've been old friends. And so using those things, her family, meeting some of those people, taking them back to her house, we're instantly immersed in her world and they're connected really, really quickly in a really special way, which is, it always gets me to the page because I think it's so special and unique. Um, And I love that intimacy between strangers and how people just reaching out in kindness, how it can really change someone's life. Indeed. You reminded me of the snowstorm in whiskey and ribbons in your previous novel and this idea of forced intimacy in this book in this close to okay the rain feels like a character of its own Mm -hmm. would you talk would you talk about the importance of rain this imagery throughout the story yeah, wow. I love how you said that. I, I love the rain. I just love the rain. So it, um, and especially here in Louisville, that week, like it's like nine times out of 10, it feels like that Halloween weekend is just a wash. <laughs> it seems like it just is always raining. And I, I love that. I want the trick-or-treaters to be able to enjoy themselves, but I do just really love the rain. And so that was an element I just added to like the coziness and the intensity. Um, I turned up the coziness at like as high as it would go because they're dealing with some such darkness and such so many big emotions, big, heavy emotions that I really dialed the coziness up. So what better time to light even more candles and to make cookies and to make another pot of tea because it's just raining so hard and let's not even go out. Let's just stay here and keep talking. Yeah, I just love it. I just love it. So, I mean, there's no, like, there is like, I could talk about like deeper meanings and stuff behind it, but also from the jumping point, I just really love <laughs> Okay. <laughs> no desert landscape for Lisa Cross-Smith. <laughs> Not in the cards. The characters in this Close to Okay are very intellectual. They're quite sophisticated in their range of interests from visual art to music and pop culture. Why was that important for you to bring out in this story? When it comes to visual art, I find myself going to visual art so often for inspiration. Um, I have big books of um, work by Van Gogh and, and the other artists I love so much. And, and I just will like when I'm just thinking or working on a project, I'll just flip through those books. I just love art, which sounds so plain and normal to say because it seems like everyone loves art and they should. But I just love art and artists, museums. 
Um, I love art for art's sake. I love just the idea of painting something or writing something just for the beauty of it. So I'm always, always interested in that. Um, and I give those sorts of things to, to my characters all the time. To me, it says a lot about the character that they take the time to experience and enjoy things just for pleasure and just for pleasure's sake. And when it comes to music, yeah, I don't think it'd be possible for me to write characters who didn't love music and have favorite songs. I just use that in the same way, character traits. So there's a part in here where she's searching for a song on the radio and she's like, hey, tell me when to stop. And when they hear Bring It On Home To Me by, by Sam Cooke, they're both like, okay, let's stop here. This is a good one. And I, I did that specifically because I can't even imagine a time and place where someone does not love that song, does not love Sam Cooke's <laughs> voice. <laughs> like, it's a really like a very comforting and oldies have always been comforting like that for me. Like, you know, when I was a little girl riding around with my parents listening to the oldies channel. So I specifically chose an oldie and a goodie and a perfect, perfect song and a perfect voice. And so I'll use things like that. Um, throughout the book just because it's a really easy connection to between characters people don't even have to know each other to stop and be like this painting is beautiful the intimacy of strangers in a museum you can share that sort of thing music and art bring people together whether they even want to be brought together or not <laughs> and so i you know so i do that and i specifically have tally be you know have postcards tacked around her home and that you know her her stacks of books um, about art and artists and Emmett loves those things too so it's just another way for them to connect hmm. Lisa did you have personal experience with therapy in some ways I do in some ways I don't and so yeah you're the first person to ask me that question in that way but, I hope um, I hope it wasn't too personal <laughs> No, no, not at all. Um, what I usually like to talk about is the fact that I wrote obituaries it was my first job out of college. And we took some grief counseling in order to best work with the people who were coming in. So I worked at the newspaper and people would come in to place memorials for their loved ones. Every now and then someone would bring an obituary down there, although we had to go through the funeral home, but the families were able to come in and place memorials. And that part with the grief, because I talk about grief a lot in this book, was really helpful when it came to someone coming in who's actively grieving, who brings something special, a picture or a poem or special words they want to place in the newspaper to remember their loved one. Who has passed and being able to work in that way and actively work with funeral homes and people who were grieving really did help in the therapy that um that was required for for my job for that to actually go to talk to someone who worked in, you know in the, in the in the role as a therapist at the at the newspaper i worked for was really was really helpful. And also there was a point in time where I was considering becoming a therapist myself. So huh. a lot of the research and training there comes from my own personal experience with that. Because the story clearly attests to the value and importance of psychotherapy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And these characters learn so much about themselves through the others they encounter, and, and most of all, Tally and Emmett. Mm -hmm. I was hoping you would discuss 
your author's note. Do you want to just read it, or would you rather summarize? Sure, no, no, I would, I would like to read it. Um, I will say before I read it that it was something I was always thinking about as I was writing the book. I was like, I want to make sure that I can put this at the end. Um, I can't imagine writing this book and not putting this at the end, but this comes at the end of the book. Dear reader, I'm a firm believer in holding fast to good, lovely, beautiful things as much as I can in this world, even when times are hard. I want to comfort my characters when they are sad, depressed, or grieving. I love filling my books with coziness, warm drinks, and sweet conversations, even when I'm making my characters' worlds crumble all around them. In life, I try my best to look for the light and to look for small mercies, even when things are dark and scary. It's important for me to leave this book on that a hopeful note. If you're looking for a sign of hope, a sign of light, a sign to hold fast, please let this be it. New mornings mean new mercies. And if things do get too dark for you, please speak up and reach out for help. You're not alone. You matter. You are so loved. Author Lisa Cross-Smith. The title of her new book is This Close to Okay. You've been listening to City Lights, WABE's daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., excitement under the tent. Tanashe Kajizi Bolden will tell us about the Alliance Theater's outdoor performance series. City Lights producer is Summer Evans. Shelley Canavy is our engineer. And I'm Lois Reitzes. I would just so love it if you would follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also find archived stories at wabe.org slash citylights. Thanks for listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.